Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the way that you speak to our hearts and minds through it. We invite you now, Holy Spirit, to come. Speak to your people. Do what only you can do. Fill us afresh with your presence, your life, and your joy, and encourage us wherever we need to be encouraged this day. In Jesus' precious and powerful name, amen. I don't know if you can, you may be seated. I don't know if you noticed the gardens when you were walking in. Every time I go into the parish offices, I feel like I've been transported to the English countryside. You see, right? Isn't it gorgeous? The echinacea and the black-eyed Susans. And all of that beauty is in large part due to a wonderful team of volunteers who carefully water and prune and take care of our gardens. So I just wanted to take a moment to thank John Grimsley, Tom Heitman, and Bill Burke, and any others um, for taking good care. So this morning we continue our sermon series in the Psalms with Psalm 6. And I want to begin by reminding us of the framework that Jamie gave us at the very beginning of this series. And he said that we would be looking at the Psalms through three lenses. Is this anybody remembering this? Um, the lens of revelation, the lens of response, and the lens of Jesus. So I'm just going to share those questions he gave us as a reminder. The lens of revelation. What is this psalm revealing about who God is and who we are? The lens of response. How is this psalm calling us to respond to God? And then the lens of Jesus. How does this psalm point us to Christ and to the good news of the gospel? And so I had those questions running around in my head this week. I think you'll hear the fruit of them in this sermon. And I, I just want to start out by sharing what I hope the message you receive this morning. If you hear nothing else, I hope you hear this. That in this psalm, the psalm teaches us that God welcomes our tears. They are to him a precious gift and a gateway into deeper trust. Or to put it in another way, our tears are not worthless. They are never wasted. And when we give our tears to God, when we bring our suffering before him in prayer, he can transform it into deeper trust. So that's a little bit of what we'll be talking about this morning. As you can tell already, you know it's a really light topic for a Sunday in July, but just bear with me, a little intensity. Um, if you'd like, turn with me to page 449 in your pew Bible. That's where we'll be camping out today. This is a prayer of David. And David begins by saying, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Now, we don't know what caused David to write this. Commentators disagree. Scholars have lots of different opinions. But the beauty of the ambiguity of the lack of context is that we can see in this, this psalm, it can address any type of suffering or time of struggle or need. And what we do know from David's words is that, is that he was experiencing intense suffering. This word languish in the Hebrew, was used to describe plants that are deprived of water. So basically, David is saying, I am withering inside. And when he says that my bones are troubled, there are really two ways that scholars interpret this, because this, this word bones has two different meanings at play. So the first way we could read this is to see that when he talks about his, phone, his bones, he's actually referring to his physical body. He's talking about physical pain, physical suffering. And I know that there are many in this congregation who can relate. 
who know the feeling of chronic pain in their bodies, what it is to walk around in a body that doesn't feel like it's working and doesn't respond in the ways that we wish that it would. And I want you to see that David names that here, that David knows that you're not alone in that pain. But there's another sense to this word, and for the Hebrew word for bones, esem, can actually mean our being, our identity, our very self, as in bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So what David could also be saying here is that his very being, his essence, his soul is in trouble. And the word the ESV translates as troubled, you'll see that it's repeated here, it says troubled twice. I don't think it captures the depth of the emotion that David is trying to convey. This word, Bahal, can also mean anxious, hurried, terrified, disturbed. I think other, other translations render this verse better when they say, Heal me, O Lord, for I am in agony. My soul also is in anguish. So regardless of the source of the suffering, whether it's physical or emotional or a combination of both, it's clear from the psalm that he's struggling. And while David is struggling, he's looking to the Lord, right? He says, be gracious to me, heal me. But he gets to the end of verse 3, and it's like he runs out of words. He says, but you, O Lord, how long? Have you ever been there? Or you feel like you're at the end of your rope where you don't have the words to say to God. You feel like you're at a loss because of the struggle or the suffering or the issues in your life. And what I want us to see right at the very start of this song is that seasons of struggle are not inconsistent with Christian faith. We see here King David the Lord's anointed, the very king who danced before the Lord and led, led, battle, led victory in battle. <laughs> this is David here. He suffered from deep grief, from a terrible struggle, and from what many scholars believe might have been a season of depression. So if you're struggling right now, in any way, know that you are not alone, that the heroes of the faith have gone before us. And not only did God bring him through this struggle to the other side, God used him in the very midst of it. And the fact that his cry of anguish is recorded in the canon of sacred scripture is a perfect example of this. His tears were not wasted. David shows us in this psalm that, that God loves us when we struggle. He, he's in the midst of it with us, and he's able to bear the weight of the pain. And David also shows us what to do when we're in that crucible and we feel like we have no words to say, it's to take our suffering to God in prayer. And that's what we see. David is brutally honest with God. He doesn't mince words here. He doesn't put on a good face. He doesn't feel like he has to pretend in the prayer closet. No. Of course, and we see this in verses 6 and 7, he describes his weeping. This is a grown man. How he floods his bed with tears and grows weary from the weight of his sorrow. We don't have to pretend with God that everything's okay when life is really hard, that we're taking the suffering in stride. Oh, you know, I'm, we're doing fine. We're great. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. You know, no. no. No, sometimes it's not okay. And God already knows that, right? He knows the words in our tongue before we even speak them and the doubts that we're too afraid to voice aloud. The things you feel like you can't say, God sees them. He knows them. 
And he wants you to bring them before him in prayer, to process them with him in the secret place, to be honest with him about your struggles. As John Calvin said, in the Psalms, we have permission given us to lay open before God our infirmities and those things we would be ashamed to confess before men. You might be ashamed of your struggle or of how you have responded to a struggle or difficulty in your life, but God isn't. He's not ashamed of you. and He's not disappointed. Nothing is too dark, too hard, or too heavy for the Lord Jesus. He can handle it. So I encourage you to give it to him in prayer and to believe that he's going to walk with you every step of the way. And perhaps you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're not in a season of suffering or walking alongside someone who is. And perhaps you're wondering, well, does Psalm 6 have anything to say to me? And I believe it does. I think the invitation is the same, to be honest with God in prayer, in whatever season we find ourselves. And why? Because the truth is, hard things happen every day to us or to someone we love or to some area of the world that we love, right? Little hardships we experience. And if they're untended, if we don't do something with them, if we don't talk to the Lord about these confusions and hurts and disappointments, what can happen is that they can slowly and subtly erode our trust in the goodness of God. Let me use a metaphor. All these little hurts, the hardships, the difficult things, kind of like barnacles, right? On the bottom of a boat. Any sailors here? Right. And they, they don't just go away, they accrue. You know, barnacles, more and more and more. And they're, you know, you can't see them. They're underneath the surface. But, but as they continue to accrue, they actually um, affect the boat, the character of the boat, and they weigh it down, and they could actually cause the boat to sink. They're not a little thing. They might look like a little thing, but over time, it accrues. Or let me explain with an illustration. Something hard happens at work. A good friend betrays you. A global pandemic ruins your plans. Your daughter is deconstructing, and you just keep on fighting with your spouse. And then you get this diagnosis. And you get angry. You start snapping at your children. You start criticizing your spouse. You end up crying in Wegmans. You're really mad, right? Right? And then the church fails you, and you feel like you have no place to go, and you just start flooding out onto everything and everyone. And then you think, God isn't good. Maybe I shouldn't even go to church anymore. And just all the bitterness and hardship and sadness and grief, it just overflows. And you take stock of yourself, and you think, why am I acting this way? And what God is inviting us, using the psalm as an example, is to see prayer as a container for all of our different difficult experiences and emotions for those things that we don't know how to handle and shouldn't handle on our own. And it's inviting us to pour it out onto Jesus. All the pain, all the grief, all the confusions, the questions, the why gods, why now, why did you allow it, what are you doing with this, I, I, I'm struggling to trust you, all of that. Until you're emptied out of a weight, all that heaviness, all that hurt. And you know what God can do when you're empty? He can fill you. Fill you with something different. Fill you with love and joy and peace 
and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control. He can fill you with himself, his own Holy Spirit. So you start overflowing, but you're overflowing in a very different way. You're overflowing with the very Spirit of God. And that overflow affects everyone around you. So the invitation in this psalm is to go to God and to take all those questions, all that pain, all that stuff, to dump it out onto him. He can take it. He can handle it. And ask him to fill you afresh with his presence, his perspective, his life. But the psalm not only invites us to process our pain with God, it teaches us to passionately pray for healing, what I would like to call contending. So where do we see this? David says, heal me, O Lord. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? And I love the boldness of David's prayer here. He is digging in his heels like a tug of war, right? It's like he's grabbed the hem of God's garment and he's not going to let go until he saves him. And as I reflected on David's plea for healing here, it reminded me of a similar prayer that we find in 2 Kings 20, the prayer of King Hezekiah. Anyone remembering this? Um, If you know the story, it's a really good one. Hezekiah is the king of Judah, and he's gotten really sick. And the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, you're going to die. The Lord says, you're going to die. This this sickness is going to lead to death. And you would think, if the prophet Isaiah, you know, like God's prophet that speaks the truth over and over again, if you think he would come to you and tell you you're going to die, you'd think you'd believe it, right? Be like, well, I guess my time has come. Guess I should get my stuff in order. Guess I should, you know, accept this, resign myself. No. That's not what Hezekiah does. No, it's like something in his spirit rises up and he resists the word. He literally turns his face to the wall and he starts begging the Lord to heal him. Right, the Lord's prophet just told him he's going to die. Begging the Lord to heal him. He he says, um, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart have done what is good in your sight. He makes a case. He presents this case before God like David And then Hezekiah weeps. Again, he's honest with God about the weight of it. And in response, the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. And what I love about Hezekiah's story and about David's response is their audacity. They teach us what it looks like to contend with God in prayer, like Jacob wrestling or the persistent widow before the judge. They're willing to argue with God and to not take no for an answer. And I highlight this because I think so often one of the enemy, the enemy of our souls, main strategies is to discourage us, right? To to make us think, you know, why even try? Might as well just give up. It's not even worth it. Why even pray, right? Get that sort of nagging resignation in our hearts and minds. And if that's you today, maybe you need to rise up like Hezekiah. Maybe you need to speak to your spirit and say, no, no, not today. This is not the end. My story isn't over. Yes, this is a difficult chapter, and I'm going to be honest with God and with trusted others about that. But God is going to bring me through. David appeals to God in prayer. He contends. And we can do the same for ourselves and for others. And that is why I am so passionate about prayer at the rail. I love it. Each week at the end of the service, you have an opportunity to come forward to receive prayer for anything. 
and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ will go before the Lord, appeal on your behalf, and be your Hezekiah, who will say, Lord, no, not today. This is not the end of your story. Oh, Lord, heal. Oh, Lord, help. If you or a loved one need healing, need anything today, I encourage you to come forward, to let others pray for you, to appeal to the Lord on your behalf. I invite you to contend. So this psalm calls us to process our pain with God, honestly in prayer, to contend with him in prayer. And finally, it calls us to have confidence in a God who hears our prayers and redeems our pain. So in verses 8 and 9, David says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Now, if you look in the scripture, read verse 7, and then you read verse 8, you might think like, oh, whoa, this is, this is a striking change in tone. Right? He goes from like, he is weeping over here to saying, depart from me, workers of evil. The Lord has heard my prayer. And you might be wondering, like, what is going on here? Is this the same person? So I want to share a few, few reflections about this. And the first is to say, uh, the first is to say that David, when he tells the workers of evil to depart, right, this phrase, workers of evil, could refer to actual enemies of David, right? People who have brought about this distress. Or we could interpret it as the worker of evil and his minions <laughs> and the enemy of our soul and those who partner with him. And he's saying, depart from me. Enough is enough. For we do not fight against flesh and blood but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, there's a little recognition that there's a war going on. It's a war here and a war there. And sometimes you need to tell the voice of fear to depart. You know, I've been listening to you far too long. Or the voice of heaviness, you know, I don't need to carry this weight anymore. Right? If you are a believer, the spirit of Christ dwells in you. So you have the authority to tell that to depart. To say, not today, Satan. Mm-mm. Not on my watch. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. I'm going to listen to the word of God. And also we see that David prays with confidence here. And I believe we can sort of interpret this confidence in two ways. So we're going to talk about the first and then the second. First, he could be able to declare these things with confidence and faith because he's processed his pain with the Lord, right? He has poured out his complaints. He has left his suffering at the feet of Jesus. So there is nothing left to dampen his faith or steal his joy. He has given it to God. And in return, God has poured in faith and confidence. The fruit of our tears can be renewed faith in God. And that's because, um, and, and I don't know if you've experienced, have you experienced this phenomenon in prayer? It shows up all the time in the Psalms where the psalmist starts in one place in this pain or frustration or complaint or confusion. And then by the end of the psalm, they are declaring the goodness and faithfulness of God in the most confident terms. And you're like, wow. That was only seven verses. How did that happen? Um, but it happens in real life, too. I mean, it happens to me all the time. I start and I'm tired, or I just see the immensity of the sorrow or the suffering, and I don't feel like I have a lot of faith for it. And it's, this happens especially when you're praying with other people, but you just start praying, right? And you're declaring the goodness of God. You're reminding yourself of who he is and what he has done and what he can do. And by the time you're done praying, it's like you're a different person. You're walking out with so much faith and hope and confidence. You're like, oh, yeah, God's going to do it, right? And that's because prayer, the actual process of prayer changes things. It's like the act of praying activates our faith. 
And that's because the process of prayer changes our perspective, right? It does something to us. When we fix our eyes on the Lord, we begin to see our situation differently from his perspective and see it through the lens of faith. But there's another way we could read this response at the end. And that's that David is still weeping. You know, as he writes these words, and his emotions haven't changed. His perspective maybe hasn't changed, but he knows the God who can change all things, and he's choosing to believe, right? In spite of how he feels, in spite of what he sees or does not see, David chooses to have faith. I don't know how God is inviting you to read this end of the psalm, but I encourage you to ask him about it. What does he have to say to you about this? What would he encourage you to do? I know he wants you to encourage you today. I'm going to close with a story. In September of 2020, I went to visit my parents in Wilmington. They have a house at the beach, and I was eight or nine weeks pregnant with our second child, and I was looking forward to just, you know, a relaxing visit where the grandparents can kind of take care of the children, provide for you. Um, but then I began to experience what I now know are symptoms of an early miscarriage. And I remember calling the doctor, the nurse advice line, talking to them, and they're like, oh yeah, well maybe, maybe not, you know, this could be normal. And so I'm on my hands and knees, like praying that the Lord would save this baby. Um, but by mid-morning the next day, the symptoms have worsened. And I knew in my body what my heart and my brain didn't want to admit, which was that I was going to lose this child. And in that moment, I just wanted to flee. I wanted to run away from this chapter of my story, from this thing that I didn't didn't want this to happen. And so I remember shoving my shoes, my feet into a pair of old shoes, jumping on a bike, and running to the beach because I just didn't know what to do. And I sat down in the sand, and I just started weeping. And as I wept, it wasn't like I was praying, but you know when you're in a really hard spot and it's like you turn your heart to the Lord? It's like inside of you just sort of turn to Jesus, even if you're not saying anything or really thinking anything at all. And in that moment, I sensed the presence of the Lord with me. He was there. And he gave me a picture. And it was a picture of Jesus on the cross. And as if, as if he said to my spirit, I knew this day would come, Abigail. And you are not alone. I carried your sorrow and your suffering and my body on the cross, and I am carrying it with you right now. And I cannot tell you how much that helped me in that moment. To know that I wasn't alone. To know that he knew at such a deep level what I was experiencing. It didn't take away the pain. It didn't stop the miscarriage. But I knew in that moment that Jesus was with me. And that he understood. And that in some strange way, he was inviting me to know him even more deeply in this experience of suffering. And in the weeks and months that followed, as I carried around this empty ache, I continued to bring my sorrow before the Lord in prayer. And I remember writing this prayer, and really the, the, the emphasis of it was, I wanted him to enlarge my heart, my capacity for compassion, so that every tear I cried would somehow make space for the tears of others. And he did. I would never have asked for it. I would never wish it upon anyone. But God was faithful, and he didn't waste it. 
And a year later, exactly a week to the day that we lost that baby, I gave birth to our daughter, Aurora. And her name means dawn, which of course is the light that comes, that pushes back the darkness, that, that morning of joy after a night of weeping. And I share this story as we close to encourage you, wherever you find yourself, if you're in a season of suffering or walking alongside someone who is, to see your anguish, like David's anguish, as an invitation into deeper intimacy with God, into union with God. To remember that weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning, that often seasons of suffering are a season, that this is not the end of the story, this is a chapter. God can take our weeping and transform it into joy, but also, if you're in a weeping season, if you're in that night before the dawn, we have a savior who does not look away from suffering, who is intimately acquainted with our pain. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was friends with suffering. He knew it well. Any suffering you experience, a body, mind, or spirit, Jesus knows. And not only that, Isaiah tells us that surely he has borne our suffering and carried our griefs. He carried it on his body on the cross. In some very mysterious way, the pain you are now experiencing, Jesus carried it, and he paid for it, and he dealt with it. And because of the resurrection, our suffering is not the end of the story. If we are in Christ there, it's an eternity of joy, right? Where all those tears you wept in that little bottle that, that scripture talks about, God keeping our tears in a bottle, recording them in a book. I have this beautiful vision of him pouring it out in some beautiful waterfall, right? In this beautiful kingdom of brightness and joy and life. Your suffering is not the end of your story. And because God is a God of redemption, he can use it for our good and for the good of the kingdom. Let's close with prayer. Oh, Father, thank you for the testimony, for the witness, for the words of David. Thank you that he was vulnerable enough to share them with us and that you, in your gracious way, share them with us this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do a good work in each of our hearts, that you would turn us to yourself, and that you would teach us how to walk in whatever season we find ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.